Mexic Clinical Pearls. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Mexic Clinical Pearls. This episode, we'll be going through a general overview of acute kidney injuries, or AKI for short. Previously known as acute renal failure, AKI is a very common occurrence among very unwell patients in the ED and on the wards. But they're also very poorly understood by medical students. We'll go through the definitions and types of AKIs, their respective causes, general approach to assessing a patient with potential acute kidney injury, and then move on to the management of such a condition. Kidney impairment is something that's very common in the hospital environment and can have a myriad of causes and consequences. Simply put, when there is a decline in kidney function that happens within a few hours to a few days, we call this acute kidney injury, or AKI. There isn't one agreed-upon best system for diagnosing and defining AKI. Some of the most commonly used criteria include KDGO, RIFLE, and AKIN. And while they're all slightly different, they all tend to focus on the same parameters, serum creatinine and urine output. KDGO, for example, defines AKI as a 50% increase in serum creatinine within 7 days, or a 27 micromole per litre increase within 48 hours. Whereas AKIN requires both of these changes within 48 hours. Both criteria also define AKI by a urine output of less than half a mil per kilo per hour for at least six hours. AKI is then stratified into stages one to three, depending on the severity of the parameters. Rifle, on the other hand, is a little bit different. Instead of stages, it stratifies AKI into risk, injury, failure, loss, and end stage. The first letter from each of these makes up the rifle acronym. Risk, the equivalent to stage one in the other two that we discussed, is defined as a 50% increase from baseline in serum creatinine, which is the same as before, or a 25% reduction in glomerular filtration rate, but does not specify a time frame. You'll notice that we tend not to talk about GFR when we discuss AKI. That's because the equations that we use to estimate GFR were created using patients with stable renal function. In AKI, things are deteriorating much more quickly, and so these equations are less accurate. It's helpful to consider the causes of AKI as pre-renal, intra-renal, and post-renal. Pre-renal causes include anything that affects perfusion of the kidneys, such as heart failure and problems with the renal arteries. Intrarenal causes refer to intrinsic kidney pathology, such as tubular necrosis and interstitial nephritis. And finally, postrenal causes are things that obstruct urinary flow, for example, stones and masses. Right, and just delving into that, prerenal causes reduce blood flow to the kidneys. We can think of vascular causes such as hypertension or renal artery stenosis. Hypertension is usually a manifestation of shock or circulatory failure. Remember the types of shock, hypovolemic, cardiogenic, septic, and anaphylactic shock. Any of these can precipitate an AKI. With heart failure, the reduced cardiac output lowers renal perfusion. As for renal artery stenosis, it's a phenomenon that can occur with hypertension or when an embolus obstructs the vessel. It's also one of the rare but important side effects of ACE inhibitors. Next, intrarenal causes which can be split into tubular interstitial and glomerular causes. Acute tubular necrosis, or ATN, is an abrupt sustained decline in GFR within minutes or days after an insult. 
It's commonly due to insufficient oxygen flow or ischemia in the setting of prolonged hypertension, dehydration or shock. Pathology is largely limited to the bandullary tubules and having granular muddy brown cast in urine is pseudonymonic. There may also be cases of toxic ATN caused by nephrotoxic drugs like aminoglycosides or amphotericin. However, this is different from tubular interstitial nephritis, or TIN, where pathology involves the interstitium surrounding the tubule. It is associated with eosinophilia and can be seen as an acute reaction to common drugs like beta-lactams and NSAIDs. As for glomerular causes, we have the glomerular syndromes associated with acute renal failure, nephrotic syndrome and nephritic syndrome. Glomerular nephritis may occur secondary to systemic vasculitis, infection, drugs or malignancy. This topic would probably warrant a separate episode to go into greater detail. But for now, it's important to exclude rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, also known as crescenteric glomerulonephritis. It presents as an accelerated nephritic syndrome. As for post-renal causes, these tend to result in acute obstruction. If we think about it anatomically, there can be ureteric obstruction due to stones, transitional cell carcinoma, blood clots, or papillary necrosis. Moving down, bladder outflow obstruction is most commonly due to benign prostate hyperplasia, BPH, among other things like prostate cancer, urinary retention, atonic bladder, or hydronephrosis. At the urethra, there might be strictures which could be due to trauma, infection, or congenital in nature. Another congenital cause includes pelvic ureteric junction obstruction. Well, amidst the many pre-, intra-, and post-renal causes of AKI, do consider that chronic kidney disease is a major risk factor for AKI, and by structuring these causes in our mind, it will guide us in knowing what to look for when assessing the patient. So now that we have a framework for causes of acute kidney injury, let's move on to an approach to assessing a patient with suspected AKI. Note the history of presenting complaint. Symptoms of AKI are often nonspecific, such as lethargy and weakness, nausea and vomiting, and anorexia. In particular, take note of any urinary symptoms such as oliguria and hematuria, as well as other features of specific pre-, intra-, and post-renal causes. Patients may also report pruritus, anorexia, and muscle cramps. On examination, the first thing to look at with any patient is whether they look well, unwell, or critical. A sick or critically looking patient with altered mental consciousness suggests a more serious systemic or renal cause, such as cerebral hypoperfusion or uremic encephalopathy, whereas an uncomfortable patient with abdominal discomfort complaining of needing to but unable to pass may be in urinary retention, secondary to post-renal obstruction. But in many cases, reduced urine output and AKI may not produce any obvious symptoms. Next, assess the patient's fluid balance status. For more detailed info about this process, check out our podcast on Approach to Fluid Management Part 1. Ask yourself, is the patient dehydrated or fluid overloaded? Check their mucous membranes, skin turgor, capillary refill and vitals, especially their resting and postural blood pressure, heart rate and temperature. Dehydration may be the result of pre-renal hypoperfusion, Resting tachycardia may suggest decreased intravascular volume, pain or infection. Hypertension and edema are suggestive of a nephrotic GN. 
and fever may suggest sepsis secondary to a UTI, pyelonephritis, or urosepsis. Perform a full renal examination, again looking for signs which may suggest a pre-renal cause associated with volume status, a renal cause, or a post-renal or obstructive cause of decreased urine output. Note the patient's fluid balance chart if they have one. Check for fluctuations in urine output, body weight, intake, and outtake. If the patient doesn't have one already, insert an indwelling catheter to allow for strict monitoring of fluid balance. This is not only diagnostic, but can also be therapeutic for some post-renal causes. Carefully review the patient's medications, looking for nephrotoxic drugs, such as the triple whammy combination of ACE inhibitor, diuretic, and NSAID. Moving on to investigation, firstly, collect urine for dipstick and send to the laboratory for MCS. Hematuria may be indicative of renal colic, pyelonephritis, or nephrotic GN. Proteinuria may suggest a nephrotic GN, and leukocytes or nitrates may be suggestive of a UTI or pyelonephritis. Send the urine off for microscopy, looking at bacterial growth and sensitivities, and the presence of leukocytes, erythrocytes, or cell casts. For bloods, perform an FBE. Whilst low hemoglobin is classic of chronic renal failure, AKI may have normal hemoglobin. For UEC, in particular, look out for hyperkalemia, a potentially life-threatening complication of AKI. If suspicious, this should be followed up with an ECG. Watch out for peaked T waves, depressed ST segments, prolonged PR intervals, loss of P waves, and wild QRS complexes. A VBG should also be performed, checking for a raised anion gap metabolic acidosis from uremia. Finally, if there is clinical suspicion of a structural issue or post-renal obstruction, consider a renal ultrasound looking at kidney size and shape, calculi, signs of obstruction such as dilated calluses and hydronephrosis. CT scans may also be indicated if better visualisation of the renal tract is required. So now that we've looked at how to investigate a case of AKI, let's move on to assessing and managing it. We generally split this process up into two parts. First, urgent evaluation and management of acute threats, and second, any subsequent interventions to resolve or prevent complications. So let's start off with the urgent problems that we might see in an AKI, as that's what our preliminary management will focus on. The number one concern we have is any life-threatening fluid and or electrolyte imbalances. For example, patients who have significant comorbidities such as severe uncontrolled heart failure may present with an AKI that's associated with hypoxia, secondary to their pulmonary edema. These patients will have life-threatening hypervolemia and will require emergency renal replacement therapy or dialysis. Severe AKI can also lead to hyperkalemia and thus patients presenting with a potassium level over 6.5 or those who are symptomatic should be immediately medically managed while urgent dialysis is organized. Some other instances where emergency dialysis might be needed include patients who've had toxin exposure or who have life-threatening uremic symptoms such as seizures or severe pericardial effusions. So once we've dealt with all the urgent complications and we've stabilized the patient, we can then move on to further management. Firstly, we should check and see if we can identify what caused the AKI and whether or not we can reverse it. 
For example, pre-renal causes which were affecting blood flow to the kidneys might be managed by optimizing volume and cardiac status via IV hydration. Any nephrotoxic medications causing intrinsic injury can be stopped or adjusted, and a post-renal obstruction may be alleviated by a catheter. Lastly, we have to be on the lookout for any other complications that may arise. This might include metabolic acidosis, uremia, or any other electrolyte imbalances. To check how the patient is going, we monitor their serum creatinine, electrolytes, albumin, as well as their fluid status daily. If it looks like their renal function is still not improving or even declining, we then can consider dialysis as our last-line resort. I hope that was a helpful summary on acute kidney injury. Stay tuned for further episodes on other things critical care, and as always, thanks for tuning into this episode of Mexic Clinical Pearls.